it has been disorienting every now and then because so Sam's listening to these playlists at mm-hmm. work and then every now and then he'll be like oh let me show you something and then he'll like tab between things <laughs> yeah that's like and a music be, video there was some kind of music video like some very scandalous thing uh-huh. happening on this music video just kind of flashes past as Sam is tabbing he's like don't worry about that I just I'm just listening Scotch <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to episode 186 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast of Butterscotch shenanigans. I'm Seth and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam and I'm an autonomaton. I'm Sam and my lower back kind of hurts a little bit. And this is a show where we talk about life, business, and working in the games industry. Today is January 14th, 20 grind teen. Mm-hmm. Getting on that grind. Yep. Uh, before we started, we have a warning. Anything could happen on this show where there's going to be profanity and then other things. So if you can't do that, then don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about <laughs> life uh, and then later business uh, and maybe working in the games industry. Uh-huh. That's right. good. That. So first of all, we had a snow day. We're in a blizzard. Oh, no. Actually, we need to thank our supporters for moneygrab.bscotch.net. Yes. Thanks for letting us grab your money. Yes. Uh, and we do have a message from from Hike Uman who says... Is twenty grindteen? A wild coffee appears. Metaphorgasm. That's a little haiku. Very funny. <laughs> very, very funny. Very funny. Uh, <laughs> if you want to look that up, you can. We won't really go into detail nope. about that. Uh, and also, we'd like to thank our recurring supporters as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So, first of all, we had a blizzard on Friday. Well, and Saturday. Friday and through Saturday. Saturday. I don't know if I'd call it a blizzard, but it did snow. I call it just a heavy snow. Yeah. What's the difference? Does Blizzard have I plus think, plus winds? I think the difference is like... Uh, I think you can't see in a Blizzard. That's kind of its whole thing. Yeah. yeah. And also, part of it is like as you go further north, uh, the def- your definition of what a Blizzard is yeah. gets more severe, That's right? True. So here, maybe maybe this was a St. Louis Blizzard, but it was an Iowa flurry, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah. And then it's like a Canada, you know... It's, it's a Canada Tuesday. light drizzle. Right yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. But it did have these super fat, wet snowflakes, which yeah. was it was perfect building snow. Yeah. So uh, well, it was it was thirty five, thirty seven degrees and snowing. So the snow was melting as it was falling, but not much. Yeah. So then they would like clump together into these just fat. It was perfect. You could make huge snowballs with it. So we were able to do that thing that I remember doing growing up, where you you start a snowball and you start rolling it, and you just start rolling it. Yeah. I remember Dad would do just this sticks. and make these like three hundred pound. Snow globes. One time we, we made a huge. One, we made an eight foot tall snowman. Yes, yeah, it was gigantic. I don't know how he we was, lifted it. We had to climb. Yeah, we had to make like eight segments. You know, mm-hmm. they had to keep. And we had a tiny, tiny little snowball <laughs> on the top. Tiny I assume head. we built ramps out of snow, so we could I don't even know. Sort of, sort of Egyptian it, yeah, pyramid yeah. style. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Yes, yeah, so my favorite thing about it was my, so my wife and I, you know, cobbled together this uh, snowman in the backyard, and then she was inside for a little bit. I was scooping snow. And then I went to put the shovel away, and I found our Halloween decor. And oh, there was a, still out, or like in the in the, in the garage. In the garage. Mm-hmm. And there was just because we just have a pile of bones that we scatter on the ground uh, for <laughs> Halloween. And so I just grabbed a few of those, and then came back, and then shoved them into the uh, snowman. <laughs> and so Diana looked back out the window, and it had a skull and <laughs> 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 like two femurs sort of sticking out of it, as long as well as the little. Uh, Stick hands. It was very. It suddenly turned into like an abomination sort yeah, of thing. Pretty red. And later in the day, the snow melted a little bit, and so it like fell over. And then there was this skull, sort of like embedded in the bottom of it. It was just. <laughs> it was a very creepy thing. I loved it. Because you made a creep man. Yeah. yeah. Creep, creepy mm-hmm. snowman. Yeah, but why would I made a snowman? It was my wife's first snowman ever because she's from Houston, where they have never seen snow before, mm-hmm. and. And will someday soon because of, you know, what was it like? Change. What was her technique like as a, well, as I, a I had to show her how to do it. So I showed her the whole rolling thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but it was funny that you watching her try to figure out how do you fill in the gaps now, you know, yeah. because she wanted to kind of rub snow in there. And I was like, no, you got to smack it in there mm-hmm. and you kind of shave off. the top. <laughs> after, you know, you know? And so kind of learning it, but it's it funny just knowing that I, at some point a long time ago, I learned how to work, how to work snow, snow as a medium, you know, You're a snowsmith, a yeah, snow kind sculpting, of, kind of weird. Um, it was fun though. But he's it was a very happy snowman. I made him a giant, you know, you know the the D face that you like the oh yeah the happy uh-huh. face emoticon with the, the use with the D, you know. Yes. So I made him look like that, and then Jenny found a couple of we have these sort of little uh, little stones along our garden, and so she found two little yellow ones and popped them in there for eyeballs. <laughs> yeah, so it looked pretty good. Although then his eye fell out about an hour later. Yeah, they were really melt. melting fast. Yeah, and yep. then just and then he just fully collapsed. Yeah. Now did you guys have like a a melt and a refreeze because it was it was. 
it was way above freezing, it was like 37 or something all day. And then it dipped down below freezing. And then, and then yeah. Well, so, the so snow, what happened? The snow layered on and actually got like eight inches tall. Yeah. And then it sort of, it sort of chunked down a couple inches. And then that was actually sort of like a, a like a collapsed layer of ice. Made like a crust. Top. Yeah. So crust. the best part was, I think you mentioned this yesterday, was you're watching the dogs deal with it. Yeah. hilarious because they because it, it supports a little bit of weight and then as soon as you actually step on it you fall yeah. through right so, so then, the dogs are <laughs> like just yeah. kind of punching it's through very this thing awkward sort of bouncing <laughs> it's kind jolting. of like a mechanical keyboard you yeah know, where it's got that first exactly. stop and then the second stop yes so that's what we're walking around in it's it's uh it's very very cold now yeah the sky is completely gray uh it's one of those days now where you look out and there's no color Mm-hmm. Everything is gray yeah. and sort of brownish gray, mm-hmm. and that's it. It did look great on Saturday morning. Well, oh, no, yeah, we went out on a walk, and it was snowing, and there was snow everywhere, and all the trees were covered. Very magical. Everybody's cars were completely buried, you know. And I saw a person nice. driving this morning on my way into work where I don't know what the the impetus is to do this. So everybody's got their cars. Clearly, they've been like, oh, my car got snowed on. And so I cleared off my windshield. I cleared off my windows. Oh, I, cleared, no. I cleared everything off. I saw somebody had just like, and, and I think we got, they, they probably had a, you know, about eight inches deep of snow still on their whole car. And the only thing they had done was just like, I guess rubbed out like a, uh, maybe like a, a man, like a, a one hole. foot diameter circle <laughs> in front of themselves in the driver's seat. Whoa. And that was it. And they're just driving around. <laughs> it's like looking out of this little tiny hole in the front of their car. Uh, it's probably dangerous. Yeah. I would not, would not advise. Uh, all right, Sam, let's talk about your face journey. Yeah. Well, so we've, we've talked about drawing before and how hard it is and also how faces are really damn hard because if you get anything off by just like a just a tiny little bit then it's not that person's face anymore yeah there's a reason we don't have human faces in any of our games yeah because i can't draw so uh i've I've been working on this This is something i i I tackled a little bit basically like seven months ago i guess for for some uh, period of time got to a point where i could sort of cobble together a face that looked like a person roughly uh, and then i haven't done it since i've been doing a bunch of other stuff and so i'm between some of my other studies right now so i thought you know why not give this a go. And one of the YouTubers I follow is doing this hundred, hundred heads in 10 days challenge. And so I was like, okay, yeah, let's we'll give this a go. How many heads per day is that? 10. Yeah. 10. For some reason, I was thinking a hundred faces a week, which that's a harder mm, yeah. d- thing to divide. Yeah. Um, it's probably, yeah, it's probably yeah. it a little bit. <laughs> uh, the math is too hard. And of course you watch this, this YouTube video. He's, he's chatting while he's doing, he's like, yes, yeah, so you're going to do a like hundred of these. And they got a Pinterest board that you just like, you have all the faces. So you don't need to look them up. Right. Um, he's just sort of chatting. He's doing it. His faces look cool. And I was like, okay, I can do that. So I hop in. I was like, surely, because I've done a bunch of drawing now. Uh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> I hopped in there. Like, first face of made, just hideous, like a strange caricature of a person. Um, second one, not much better. And then the third one was probably my favorite, which is I tried a different technique. And it was supposed to be like, it was a sculpture, one of those marble sculptures of like a, uh, one of those old ones of like a maiden or something. And so it's like the flowy drape across the head and she's like looking down and all beautiful and stuff and mine looked like a spanish man <laughs> who was like a spanish monk with a mustache and i was oh. like how how did this even happen this is so far afield so i'm i'm really trying to like so what you're saying is it was very similar to this snowman situation it was where somebody was like here's this beautiful snowman mm-hmm. and you're like i'm gonna put a weird skull on the that's exactly it. <laughs> it appears to be my mo these days um but yeah it's, it's one of those things where it's it's always humbling to revisit some of these, you know, maybe something that you haven't practiced in a while and mm-hmm. just kind of, just kind of, you can see the rust, embrace the suck a little bit, you yep. know? So that's what I'm working on in my, my side project. 20 grind teen, yep. embrace the suck. So there how many go. faces have you done? I've done six. <laughs> 94 to go. <laughs> takes me for fucking ever. And then I was, I've been looking up some tutorials and stuff too. So basically I need to relearn how to do it and then figure out how to do it so I can do it effectively. You got to figure out, you need to do it, figure out how to do it. Because so I don't, you can do at the end it. of the day, you don't want to have a hundred faces that just are the same kind of bad. No. Nope. Right. So I'm going to like. You got to fail in different ways. Yeah, exactly. So I'm trying a few different ways and and then, so it's going to take me actually a long time. This makes me think of how our box artist, Eric Hibbler, drew mm-hmm. a self-portrait every day in college. Yeah. 
Like if you do day. that, you get pretty good, at least at drawing your own face. Yep. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that carries. It seems to carry over. Oh, yeah, it definitely does. Yeah, it definitely does. Because uh, I probably have to a certain point you get bored and you start doing weird stuff. Because like once you're like, yes, OK, I can do it. I can draw my mm-hmm. face. And then you'll start like putting yourself in a spacesuit. Now you're on the moon. Right. Or now, you know, now it's all psychedelic and swirly and weird. Mm-hmm. You know? It would be kind of funny that if you spent all that time practicing your own face and then at some point you finally move out into the world and you start drawing other people <laughs> and, they just and then look somehow like you. you can never draw a face that isn't yours and so you start drawing other people in all these different contexts and then everybody in that picture just has your face again it's like those photoshop uh like family portraits where they swap someone's face for everybody's yeah face. yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or, okay. or basically any of the old old paintings from mm-hmm. you know the 1500s or whatever that yeah. are just all the same yes face. you see like a uh um, it'll be a family, like a, a several generations, like a baby mm-hmm. and a father and a mother and a couple of grandparents. And even the like the baby and the grandma look exactly the same. To be fair, though, they, you know, they, super old people and super young people look roughly that's similar. That's true. It's a, it's a bell curve of mm-hmm. appearances. Yeah. You kind of just look the same at the beginning and the end. Uh, all right. And then we also need to talk about a, some cooking show. Yeah. Well, I so I had this question. So I was watching this show on Netflix called Final Table. And the whole idea is that okay. it's just a bunch of chefs being super badass. This is kind of the easiest way to put it. Uh, but they're in pairs. And almost every single time they introduce one of the chefs, they're like, oh, so this person studied or worked under so-and-so for 13 years. They all have a lineage. They all have a lineage. Every single one of them. Almost. This is true in science, too. Yeah. And then I was wondering, I was like, games is weird, right? Kind of newish. Because. There's not a lot of lineage. Well, yeah. And, and even then, like, you don't. No, but it's actually because there's not an apprenticeship model. Well, but there there can't be because there are only a few big names in games, and they're the people that are running game studios or that they're mm-hmm. like the creative director or whatever, right? And uh, and you don't really sort of study up under that exactly. Those people are mostly running production, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a different kind of thing than uh, than building the game yourself. Yeah, yeah. And, and so if you're looking at it, you know, in science, like because you have a pretty pretty dang big um, academic lab where people are being right. trained up, right? And everybody kind of leaves with that that same sort of credit of oh yeah they trained under you know whatever person but there might there might be a couple dozen of them or something uh, and and what that really means is that they had a, a bunch of exposure to that person who then got to critique their ideas and and that right mm-hmm. but these people are actually all working independently under that and in uh, in the food industry it's basically you're, you're you're like you're working as a as a line chef for a while then you're you're working your way up through this thing um, but you're also learning from that person directly right and then being critiqued directly by that person. Uh, and for these really high-performing chefs, like the critique that you're getting is fucking brutal, right? right. Which is the same deal in sort of academic <laughs> mm-hmm. science. Uh, I, I just don't think the business looks similar enough in in the games industry, really. Because uh, you, you do get the kind of lineage coming out of companies, right? Where you'll right. say this is a well, maybe Blizzard or ex-Bethesda employer, whatever. And and if they are close to that position, if they're kind of in a higher management position, then you then you still can get that. But yeah, it just seems kind of like it's a different. It's a different enough business. Hmm. Well, maybe though, it's, maybe that'll change as tools change. It might because I mean, nowadays you'll see like the the No Man's Sky team was twelve people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, and that, and that's a huge game. Yeah, uh, and you're you're seeing bigger and bigger games being made with fewer and fewer people. You know, if you extrapolate that out, eventually maybe it'll be very very common for popular games to be a a one or two person operation. You know, yeah. The triple A doesn't seem to be getting any smaller as a no. They're bigger yeah. <laughs> for now. Bigger. I don't know why I yeah. said that. I don't have any contract. Yeah, I was just I was looking in. I thought it was curious, and um, I, th- I think I'm gonna I'm gonna look into the the restaurant industry a little bit to see what basically what the contours of that business are and how they might map to game dev stuff. Because I think you're you're right that of course they're very different business models, but I think it was just a curious thing because it seems like there'd be a lot to use from that sort of a model where it's, you know, people who can, you can study up under someone or go and, you know, people swap, they'll go show up at someone else's restaurant and work for like a week or so if they're, you know, peers in the industry so they can figure out kind of how that person does things and get critique and that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, um, I think importantly, this is something we'll talk about in a moment, but those really, really professional chefs are really good at what they do and they also know why. Yes. Yeah. Which I feel like is important. And we'll talk about that mm-hmm. in a little bit. Um, but also, Sam, you want to talk about uh, about your distractionary issues with YouTube? Well, yeah. So I remembered someone someone asked a good question last week or the week before. They yeah. said, uh, "You know, what what do you guys do when you kind of 
or do you like have, do you have bad days and how do you recover from them? Um, and so my response at the time was that this YouTube problem that I tend to have, which is I'll fall into a YouTube hole for a couple hours sometimes. And I was getting yeah, very tired problem of it. a lot of people have. It is. Yeah. And I was getting very tired of it. And then uh, I basically realized because I used YouTube for my music. So really usually what I go to YouTube for is just to turn on music so I can get to work on something. Um, but of course, in the process of doing that, you hit this front page that has actually very good for me, algorithmically driven, like here's a tutorial on how to draw faces, for example, because you suck so much. Here's this cool thing. And so – And here's a bunch of fail videos. Yeah. Well, I don't really watch those too much uh, <laughs> as far as like the click-through things. But but those things that sort of feel like they're productive in a way yep. just get me every fucking time. And so I was thinking about this on on Sunday yesterday and I was like, this is this is dumb. I could just decouple these. And so I just canceled my <laughs> premium YouTube account and then just moved everything over to Spotify. Yeah. And I found the service that actually moves your playlists. <laughs> oh. Uh, it's called like SoundIz or something. Mm, interesting. So I basically migrated – my entire playlist in like 10 minutes over to YouTube, which is like 180 songs. And then now I'm done. So I don't have to look at YouTube now unless I'm going to YouTube for a particular reason. It has been disorienting every now and then because so Sam's listening to these playlists at mm-hmm. work. And then every now and then he'll be like, Oh, let me show you something. And then he'll like tab between things. <laughs> yeah. That's like and a music be, video. There was some kind of music video, like some very scandalous thing uh-huh. happening on this music video just kind of flashes past as Sam is tabbing. He's like, don't worry about that. I was just, I'm just listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Spotify, I'll handle all that nicely. So yeah. Yeah. I just want to say it's a good solution to kind of decouple those things as opposed to. Yeah. That's a big that. reason why I've never gotten onto the YouTube, uh, like listening to music via YouTube train mm-hmm. every now and then I'll do something like I'll pull up uh, maybe the super Mario 64 soundtrack on right. YouTube or something only because that is pretty basically the only place you're going to get that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's just like, listen to it straight through for like an hour and a half or two. And then, you know, get out of there, gonna get out. So yeah, well, I think that's an important note, which is you gotta, you gotta find those holes in your, in your process yes. yeah, where you, and those ones are especially insidious because these are things that happen with you sort of not thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Like the reason that that falling down a YouTube hole is a problem is because you're not controlling it. You're not deciding yeah, exactly. to fall down a YouTube hole, which means you may not even notice just how much time you've lost to it or the moments that it does happen or whatever. So that's a good, that's a good, uh, good insightful point. All right. So we need to talk about the Phoenix Project. What is, what is this? All right, this is a book. Uh, if you look it up on Amazon, you will see two books on <laughs> The Phoenix Project, one of which is a, a nipply man covered in wounds and chains, but also looking kind of sexy. If you're nipply, what does that mean? It means you just got nipples Everywhere. out there. Just broad, you're broadcasting them to the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not the book we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> There's another one that is – it's got a white cover and blue text. It's by uh, Gene Kim and Kevin Beer. It's about IT, which is probably the opposite sort of yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, I, don't know. I, found it pretty, I found it pretty sexy, yeah. frankly. It's a, yeah, it's, it's a novelization of a story of a, of a, a guy basically going through and, and converting a company that's struggling into one that is properly running its IT and dev departments using DevOps strategies. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I picked this up, I read it about a year ago and I picked it up at the time because I was trying to dig into DevOps and, and it was just really well reviewed, but I was trying to, I was having so much trouble imagining this whole concept, you know, how could, (laughs) how could this be? And it is, it is good. It's a page. So yeah, it is. Yeah. I, I found myself wishing for this genre of book to be yeah. one thing. Yeah, it, to be in everything. I was like, this is a business thriller. As in, as in here's yeah. a person yeah. who finds himself thrown into this tumultuous, crazy business situation and then fig- trying to figure out how to navigate the politics of it mm-hmm. as well as coming up with new procedures. And I was just like, yes, oh, <laughs> I'm riveted. Um, yeah, so the idea with DevOps is that up until – Which is actually, short for developer operations. Yeah. Uh, and up until pretty recently, most companies viewed their operations as completely separate from their technology slash R and D slash sort of software development wings. And this this is particularly true for manufacturing companies or companies that are retail or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was always this kind of this kind of uh, uh, conflict ridden relationship between the 
people leading the company and managers and whatever, and then all the developers that they had on staff because the people who who were coming up with business plans would just come up with the plans mm-hmm. and then just dump those plans onto the developers and the developers would not have uh, adequate processes or would not have the ability to say no to projects, et cetera, et cetera. And eventually you run into this scenario where developers constantly trying to hit deadlines end up way overworked, are developing tons of tech debt, and it becomes nearly impossible for them to deliver good projects uh, on time, on time yeah. in any kind of reasonable way without things also catching on fire and creating server outages and mm-hmm. and whatever. Um, so then in, in around like 2009 or so, this idea of DevOps started appearing. And DevOps is, is then the idea of of sort of marrying those two ideas that your operations and your development are just two sides of the same coin and that you can't you can't make decisions in one domain without under, completely understanding right. what's happening in the other domain. Um, so that, that includes all aspects of deployment and aspects of security and just all, and and then testing, like all the pieces of the puzzle that are often in completely separate departments. Where you'll have the developers off in their department, you'll have uh, IT who is responsible for delivering it and testing it, all that kind of stuff in some other department. It, it, the structure always depending on the exact company. Uh, but the idea is now everyone's competing for resources and all kinds of just really bad things happen that make it so that you can't successfully do anything. Yes. And so so we kind of read – we read through all this stuff and then the the actual sort of meat and potatoes book is called the DevOps Handbook, which is written by the same authors and it's a follow-up, which is basically – now that we've told you the story, mm-hmm. the thriller, uh, here's the sort of manual of all the concepts that we talked about in the novel and – like how you just how to think about them more deeply. So we all read through the Phoenix project and now uh, now we're reading through the DevOps handbook to kind of get, you know, get deeper into it. I think what had happened was because you recommended it to Sure over the break. Yeah, break. And then the first day back from work, Sure revealed that he was so hyped because he'd finished reading this. He was so hyped to do DevOps that he, couldn't he like, sleep. couldn't sleep the night before. <laughs> and he was like, like, he was building all these flow charts, and he's like, I'm found all, all these weaknesses in our, yeah, our deployment pipeline. I was like, what, <laughs> I was like, what just happened? To <laughs> I want some of that. Well, the funny thing is, like, that's what happened to me too. But it was just was strictly inside my domain and right in the company, right? So I, I brought it back and I started applying all that stuff to to how I. I remember you were super excited tech. about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't I didn't think to have that spill over to the rest of the studio. Right. So the, the question time. was, can this and does this apply to game, the game pipe that we got yeah. going on? And the yeah. answer is definitely. Yes. Yeah. And so we, we've basically now this over the next couple of days, we've got all these things that we have to figure out because mm-hmm. after reading through this, and then we went back and looked through all of our processes of how we're putting our games together, how we're communicating, how we plan, what work is going to happen, how we test things, how we make deployments, you know, and we're just like, oh, my God. Our pipeline <laughs> it's is just a shit show. Either non-existent <laughs> or random, yeah. yeah. Well, and it's it's better than it was because you know when we Definitely, switched yeah. when we switched over to Trello, then we cleaned up a lot of our processes because originally it was just completely random chaos, mm-hmm. and now it's completely random ordered stuff. Chaos. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so completely we completely ta- random ordered chaos. <laughs> yeah, but but for me, the the most insightful thing, and this actually comes from um from a a book from the eighties called the goal, which is about manufacturing. Yeah. Actually, most of the concepts are inherited from good manufacturing processes, yeah. um, which I think is fascinating, but also it makes a lot of sense. Yep. Yep. Um, and as you know, as software developers, we like to think, Oh, but I make it something so unique and special mm-hmm. that like, you can't possibly put rules on it, you know, which is not, you know, it's nonsense. Um, and so in manufacturing, they talk about uh, that. If you make improvements, in your process, anywhere other than your one bottleneck, because there's only ever one bottleneck mm-hmm. at a time, uh, then that's not actually a true improvement. Because right. if you have if you have an area of your workflow where work is piling up, that's your bottleneck. And if you make things faster and better before the bottleneck, then you just keep piling things up at the bottleneck. Mm-hmm. And if you improve things after the bottleneck, you won't see the benefits because the bottleneck can only deliver <laughs> right. things through so fast. Yep. So in our in our workplace, I am the bottleneck. Mm-hmm. Like me, Seth, mm-hmm. I am the bottleneck. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and it's well to clarify, you're the bottleneck for the core product that we're yes, selling for deploying mm-hmm. yeah. for deploying and delivering games. And yeah. the, the reason is that that uh, game programming is the glue that holds together all the other pieces mm-hmm. of game development. So when Sam makes art, it's not going to go into the game until it gets integrated into the game project, yep. and then I implement that. 
Um, when we get sound effects and music delivered, that can't go into the game until I do that as well. Um, whenever we get changes to Rumpus, which is our web technology, I got to update the game client to accommodate that. And on top of that, the rest of the game still has to move forward, mm -hmm. right? And so looking through all of our processes, you know, we're kind of talking through like, okay, what actually is our what actually is our decision making process for what to do and when, what gets priority, you know, uh, and and if there's a completely unplanned change, like some new uh, piece of art gets gets updated or something, or um, or like today I'm going to push out a huge update to Rumpus that's going to break most of Seth's code, right. for example. Mm -hmm. And so then, if that's the case, do I need to now drop everything and reorder the entire work queue to fix it, or can we do this a better way? Um, and if, and what basically we've seen is that because, because most, because as the bottleneck, uh, I don't, I have to keep responding to external inputs into my work process, then I've got some really, really important things that I need to do for the game that have been sitting in Trello for six months mm -hmm. uh, or more. And every time we push those things to the bottom of the pile, we keep building up tech debt because now we're making changes to the game that would have been made differently and better had these other things already been taken care of. Yeah. But the model, the bottleneck in this case, because uh, ours is a little bit less linear because then we have this secondary products like the podcast and like the front facing part of the website and this yeah. kind of mm -hmm. stuff, right? Where where now because Seth is so bottlenecked, then that creates other problems. So so like this huge suite of changes I made to to Rumpus. I would I would have loved to have delivered them the moment that I was done, right? But I can't. I have to right. wait until – because they're going to break some of the things in the game. So I have to wait until Seth has the time and the the right you know space to be able to clear stuff off of his deck so that he can – so that I know he can make those changes and just end up with a broken game for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, it's deeply problematic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean and some, of the, you know, some of the annoying parts about this too is a lot of that stuff that, that Seth's talking about because it's like the actual building of the game is the thing that Seth has to be doing, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of the rest of it is stuff that we could have tools probably doing or something or or that's – And we do actually in a lot of cases. we do cases. for a lot of it. Yeah. And maybe we need more or, or you know who knows. But um, but even the case of, of the web stuff, like the changes that I need to make are just literally going through all of the 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 uh, responses that, that Seth is receiving from the server and just changing them a tiny bit. Right. It's it's And it's a thing I can write because the whole thing was that I made them all be consistent now. They previously were inconsistent. Which means it's even easier to make this change than it was to do it in the first place, right? Because mm -hmm. I can just write a one-liner that says, hey, find every single receipt of a response and just change it, change to, it to look like this yeah. now, right? Super easy, except somebody has to go in and do that. Really could be anybody, mm -hmm. right? But somebody has to go in and do that, which maybe means like, maybe I should go do that now that I think about it. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> we'll talk, we'll talk <laughs> about that. <Okay. laughs> Yeah. yeah. So the, yeah, or we the big pair program is, on it. Maybe start a transition. Start a hand better way yeah. of the client side code. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, that's the big question with all this, though, is just how do we how do we manage this series of problems? Yeah. Yeah. Because we're all completely interdependent on each other. Mm -hmm. Um. And if where wherever there are bottlenecks, you know, that's where we need to be focusing our improvements. Mm -hmm. And there are they exist all over the place yeah and but an interesting phenomenon here is Seth is the bottleneck but maybe one of the cures of the bottleneck is making tools right yeah yeah but yeah. so now who's going to make the tools because exactly. now I'm the bottleneck because we don't have enough tools now because we don't have mm -hmm. enough tools and I have to build up the web <laughs> stuff also right uh, so, so it is it an improvement spot. to just move the bottleneck to well, yeah, the thing is, you is always it, have one yeah, yeah you always, there always have one be. there always will be yeah. one and the question is where should it be question is which bottleneck which bottleneck moves work through the system faster? Right, and, and and basically for us because it doesn't actually matter. Like the, delivering the web content doesn't matter much at all, uh, except for the parts that make the game work. And then delivering the game is literally the only thing that matters to the business mm -hmm. um, from a just us being able to survive kind of kind of perspective. So the bottleneck definitely should not be there. Is the one thing we know. Right? Mm -hmm. It should not be on the the game production side. Yeah, it should be somewhere else. Well, ideally. There, there's another. There's another tricky aspect of this, which is that that problem of expanded capacity always increases traffic through the system, right? So, like, if we did have this, this is why you see uh, AAA Game Studio will have like 400 people on staff, and they're they're all of their hair is on fire, and they're crunching mm -hmm. all the time, uh, and it's because as it gets as the team gets bigger, the scope gets bigger, yep, and, and the scope always exceeds the team size, yep. So that's that's a challenge, um, and I think it's pretty much always going to be true that that probably the game programming will be a bottleneck just because you can always yeah. optimize. Like you can always yeah. do more programming. Oh, this whole, actually this idea of crunch is kind of interesting too. 
with the perspective of kind of the lessons of DevOps, because one of the phrases they use constantly is avoiding firefighting and heroics. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, which is what crunch is. Which is what crunch Purely. is. Purely. And, uh, and, you know, thinking back to us preparing for the launch of Crashlands, then dealing with the launch of Crashlands. And, and, yeah, we, we, and we referred to it as putting out fires because that's what we were yeah. doing. And we proudly talk about like, oh, when we went into beta, we we uh, crushed 2,200 bug reports in four weeks. And it's like, why the hell were there so were many bugs? So many bugs? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe yeah. we should be ashamed, you yeah. know, instead of proud. Well, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it. And so this whole, this whole idea of, of this system is – and it's also being able to trust your deployments and being able to trust everything mm-hmm. so that – because it, it used to be back in the day that, you know, people would deploy software, you know, once every several years. Yeah. And it would and be it a nightmare. Dude. It, it was, was a Fallout 76 kind <laughs> yeah. of situation. And, uh, yeah. and then even internally <laughs> when people are deploying tools for their for their own teams and stuff, um, they would – like the, the IT staff who are doing it stay up to do it at night so that they can yeah. fix all the bugs before the employees come in the next morning to, to have to use the system, you know. And the idea with all this stuff is basically just to take all of that away because you build a, you build a pipeline that you trust so much – that you don't worry about – you don't have to worry about whether or not you fuck something up because there are things in place that will catch it if that's if that's what happened. Um, so basically, we do it, not have that. It ends up slowing down in the short term basically the application of new features or new tasks or whatever else to the project. But in the in the mid and long term, massively increases yeah. development flow. Well, because it also makes the it, – it basically erases your tech debt. Yeah. Um, and I know like we're, we're – I know I'm certainly just constantly swimming in tech debt <laughs> from all mm-hmm. this stuff that – that I've built in the past and I'm, and I'm doing a much better job now with, with rumpus in particular of making a system that's not going to have that. Um, but even still it's, it's uh it ends up being a huge, huge cost that just keeps on going up over time. And we even have this with our old library of games. Yep. Those are basically just tech debt for us because we have to keep them out in the world mm-hmm. and they are all like, they're all written by, you know, five years ago, Seth or whatever. Right. So, well, e- even, even level head, you know, and, and this is an outgrowth of the process that we use. Right, which is like even Levelhead is riddled with with tech debt problems already, um, because you know, for example, like uh, in when when did we go to Nintendo headquarters? September. September. Yeah. So so we knew about that several weeks in advance, but that was it. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, we were like, well, we have all these things that we need to be able to show to the press, and none of them exist. Mm-hmm. And so, no matter what our priority queue was in terms of things that were truly important to preserve the long-term functionality of the game, yeah. to have good, clean coding practices, to have good, strong, resilient system architecture of the game, none of that matters because if we have a game that has a beautiful system architecture under the hood but doesn't have anything that the press care yeah, about, no cares. then it's not worth building, right? Mm-hmm. And so we keep running into these scenarios where we have to drop everything uh, and then jam in a bunch of features on top of unstable code so we can show the game mm-hmm. to people. And then uh, later, it doesn't get cleaned up because we continue to have to show the game. We continue yep. to have to do mm-hmm. these things. And it does it does remind me. And the me, stuff is in there now, so we should just go build other. It's in there. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's working as far as we could tell. Yeah. Um, and maybe it'll, <laughs> maybe it'll break later when we start adding more stuff. Um and and that's kind of that's always the push and pull between mm-hmm. having deadlines and having external pressure to deliver new features means that you're just never going you're never going to get out of tech debt once you have it. There's yeah, just yeah. there's just literally no there's yeah. no way. Right. So apparently one of the practices that a lot of companies who are renowned for how good their DevOps and their delivery of their software is, is that they take literally twenty percent of their time just for refactoring. The only purpose is basically they set de- developers loose and say, just clean up. You know, like whatever, whatever's mm-hmm. been bugging you, whatever, you know, whatever tooling you need I to make. I think I'm going to start doing this. Yeah. Like every Friday is just yep. clean up day. Yep. Um, well, and, and also that, that inherently slows things down, which is maybe good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, because what's, what's the saying? Like slow is smooth, smooth is fast, slow is fast. Mm-hmm. Right. So if, if <laughs> right. like you can jam in as many features as you want really early and build up tons of tech debt. What that means is that six months down the yeah, line, somebody would be like, hey, can we do this? And you'd be like, oh my God. So here's the thing. I have to redo literally everything. I have to, have to rebuild the whole game. Yeah, this, happened <laughs> in, this happened in Crashlands repeatedly toward, yeah. toward the middle, actually. The thing we were like, oh, well, this is just what we're going to build now because we're stuck. This is our, this is what we got. So let's yeah. just go. Um, even stuff, I remember we, I think we talked about like, let's put hats on the creatures. And we are like, well... It's not really a thing we could do. <laughs> yeah, the thing is we were kind of in a rush to get all those creatures in. And they're all sort of custom-coded yep. uniquely, yep. each of them, and none of them even knows where its own head is. <laughs> so if we want hats, 
Yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> I'm gonna need six weeks. Yeah. yeah, gonna need six weeks and a lot of Red Bull yeah. to put yeah. hats on creatures. Yeah, so, so we're trying yeah, to the problem with Tech Ted is apparently easy problems then end up being actually quite exactly. hard problems. Yeah, and 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 the reason that that this sort of like DevOps term comes up, and it's weird because uh, when you're talking about manufacturing, it's like oh, like there's the factory that's like producing the stuff, and then there's the developers who are creating the infrastructure and the IT that supports all the business operations. But even when you think about a AAA game studio, there's the publisher who is out there like making all these promises to the public and stuff and being like, here's all these new amazing products that we have coming. And then there's the developers who apparently only exist to support those promises, Mm -hmm. right? And so you have the exact same relationship and then you end up with these big crunch scenarios and whatever. And so a big part of of what we need to do internally and what everybody needs to do is to sort of gain a better understanding of what just what truly happens in the long term you know when you start to uh when you start to make promises of for things that don't exist yet and put deadlines on things and then push that refactoring and cleanup and mm-hmm. and good programming practices further and further down the list eventually it becomes impossible to to change anything or do anything yeah. at all yeah. so it's uh we got some. We got some That's soul, soul searching. To do. Well, the reason that we're doing this now is because we're remembering back when we launched Crashlands and how it was horrible, how it crushed us. It was really um, bad, and yeah. and we're we're looking out, you know, at the at the launch level head someday, and we're thinking, you know, please not again, it's never <laughs> again. It's not that far away. Yep. And if and if if everything that we hoped comes true with this game, which is we believe it has a higher chance of success than Crashlands did, we believe it's a truly good game. We have we believe it has a good market fit. We believe all this stuff that if it's all true means that we're going to get crushed so hard. Yeah, we're going to be dead. When it gets launched, that we won't even be able to be happy about the fact that we launched a successful product because we'll just be putting out fires constantly. Mm-hmm. And so now would be a really good time for us to start establishing practices yep. and, <laughs> and techniques and new new tooling and all this kind of stuff so that by the time that that happens, we're just ready for it. And it's still going to be, no matter what happens, it's going to be a shit show. Mm-hmm. But if we can make it so that we get to sleep, Sometimes yeah. and we get to, if we make it so we can sort of like come to the shit show from eight to five, grab yeah, our exactly. popcorn and be like, oh god, <laughs> ah, no, this, this is, is intense, this is <laughs> and then go home and actually sleep. That would be that's what we want. Yep. If you go back and listen to our podcast around the time of the Crashlands launch and the Crashlands beta, you can just hear it. Just like you, tired you, you can are. hear how tired we are. It's it, it was bad. It was really bad. <laughs> I should, yeah, actually, before we do this, before we <laughs> level head, I should go back and yeah. listen to this. Um, yeah, so we've actually been in these conversations since mid-December. Yeah. And we have kind of slowed down our dev process as we've been kind of exploring, like... We've been putting work into this ops question, which is how how are we going to handle this? Yeah. Because we can't do it the same way we did last time. Yeah. If how we do we want to loosen survive? Up, loosen up pressure on the bottleneck or move the bottleneck mm-hmm. somewhere else. Yeah. Right? How do we have tooling... Already in place so that when we get an influx of players, we have places for them to go submit reports and problems. Yeah, and, whatever. and, and we've been talking about things like making automated patch note delivery, you know, yep. um, so that like the the one thing standing between us and deploying a patch is just making a git commit and then yep. having a robot that's like, I see it, and mm-hmm. then making that available somehow. Yep. Um, or even doing some automated testing on that stuff. Yeah. So, which is now how Rumpus works, which is pretty like I'm, I get to now just have a fucking blast working on Rumpus because I just code up my stuff that I'm doing my thing and then I just say, okay, cool, type in git commit and then git push. And then all of a sudden, two minutes later, that's now live on our on our dev site, just sitting there ready for testing, ready for use by the internal team. And it just feels, that's cool. It yeah. feels so good. But I feel like this, even if you're not really into business or even if you're not a not into tech. I, well, I think if you're doing, if you're doing things in a company that is bigger than one. If you've ever asked the question, <laughs> why is this so hard? Yeah. Like this should not, this thing that we're doing just seems like it should just not be this hard. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're, you're right. You're probably right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So this, the book's called the Phoenix project. And then there's the follow-up, which is the DevOps handbook. I will say about the DevOps handbook, I'm about a third of the way through. And if you just threw away part one, parts one and two, <laughs> I think it would probably be fine, be fine because and there. I mean, and maybe that's not completely fair because there are some good just like quotes and some little whiz nugs just mm-hmm. kind of embedded in it. Um, You're going on the any benefit principle. Yeah, yeah. But that's exactly. <laughs> yeah. It is just so fluffy and puffed full of business non-speak, you know, mm-hmm. where they just have have phrases that f- don't mean a fucking thing that they just like keep on repeating over and over and over again. That if you literally just took them out, it, this the paragraph would mean the same thing except now be it you know. Mm-hmm. 
30% shorter. So it's kind of an aggravating read from that standpoint. But if you're a person who reads business books, I'm sure you won't even notice. Um, You'll be like, yeah, this is how people talk. This is how people talk. <laughs> uh, but it, it's Just driving me. long-winded, vacuous nonsense oh for it's, 35 minutes. Uh-huh. It's driving me a little bit crazy, but there's some there's some good stuff in there that I think is worth mining out of it. Um, so I'm just on my Kindle, I'm just highlighting, highlighting the good stuff so I can go back afterwards after I you know, defuzz my brain by just not reading those quotes in order. And yeah. I think it'll be a, a good way to do it. Send me those cliff notes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm still reading probably what I'm going to do. I'm still reading it, but, and then also I've started reading, um, the, the personal MBA just written by an author who went through a uh, business school undergrad and then started moving through the business world as a manager and everything. And just couldn't really understand why people were getting all these MBAs because none of them seemed to know more than him. Hmm. At the very best, it was just similar. They just were they were able to do something like they didn't have any sort of like magical business knowledge or any particular insights uh, that just didn't seem available through experience, common sense, and reading some books, you know. Um, and so, so I've started reading that book, which is basically him taking about like forty or fifty books that he thinks are sort of like all contain the most crucial information about what you need to know to successfully start and run a business and then just turning that into one book. (laughs) So I'm reading that so far, so far pretty good. But again, like the DevOps handbook, I think this is because on Amazon, you can now download the first part of a book for free. The first part of every book is now a sales pitch Mm -hmm. of why, of why you should read the rest of the book. And there's no useful information in that first, just none. No, just kind of like, get through it. I'm like, yes, I get it. I should read this book. (laughs) I'm right here doing it. Yeah. As soon as, as soon as you see the, the the phrase, this book, Mm. like then you've just skip 10 pages and and try again. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I wrote this book. Yep. Just tell me the actual stuff. Anyway, uh, all right, let's go on to some questions. These questions come from our listeners over at podcast.bscotch.net. So if you'd like to get your question into a future episode, you can uh, go there and then put it and then put it in there. Speaking of tech debt, the podcast site is just still sitting there in a piece of tech state. <laughs> we did get a, we did because get a, I'm the bottleneck for all web tech. We did get a good number of very funny emails from people. Yeah, we got about, I think, three emails yeah. and then maybe three or four Discord messages mm-hmm. about how shitty the website was. So thank you for that. Yeah, appreciate it. We did it. We asked for it, and we and you guys delivered. Uh-huh. But it wasn't enough to make me actually feel bad about it. So it's just still gonna sit there. Keep piling it on, guys. Yeah, keep piling Ramp it, it up. Let's go. Pile it on thick. All right. First question <laughs> comes from anonymous. Are there any rival shipping companies in the butterscotch universe? So we talked about the Bureau uh, of Shipping. No. Well, we, there's there's none that we've explored so far. The implication in Flop Rocket, though, mm-hmm. is that there's some because they're trying to get to space, right? There's like. There's some implication there, and I know we talked about it. We didn't set anything into the canon, mm-hmm. but we talked about why it was that they were doing this because they they eventually became the Bureau of Shipping. Yes, the Bureau of Science right. morphed into the Bureau of Shipping. Yes, yeah, so the Bureau of Science was stuck in this asteroid for some reason, yeah. mm-hmm. making rockets happens. for some reason, mm-hmm. and they were just trying to get them like out of you know they're trying to shoot their rockets through this complicated uh, cave system for some reason because the Bureau mm-hmm. of Science was founded by cave people. Yeah, that's probably what it was. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so uh, so, so they finally got to space and then they realized, well, there's nothing to do out here. And so – but they noticed that there were lots of other things in space that mm-hmm. might want to you know, pass contents between them. And so then they became yeah, – It shooting. turns out the space is the least important part of space but also yep. the biggest. Yeah, that's the yeah. easy part. I mean navigating cave systems is the hard part. Yeah, yeah. so – Being in space, you're just there now. Mm-hmm. You did it. Man, so but the implication was that there was, there was some like challenger there. At the time, mm-hmm. right where they were trying to get there first, there was some some sort of like a. Uh, it was that they were they were underfunded, yeah, which is yeah. why they part partially why they had to put their launch pad deep deep five in kilometers an in an asteroid, yeah, right, because this is the cheapest real estate. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's the actual so, story, which means so it's I an think, underdog story. So that yeah. there was already some somebody out there. Well, so I think the the way we've been we sort of thought about it in a general sense is that there's a bunch of these different bureaus around that are all sort of a collective. Of like underneath some you know, collective entity, basically. And the only other one we've sort of even thought about on the lore side is the Bureau of Destruction, which is the weapons yeah. manufacturing yeah. division of, of this whole thing. Um, but we haven't actually looked at other shipping it's companies. Like if you need something blown up or broken or whatever, mm-hmm. you talk to the Bureau of Destruction. Yeah. But everyone's really intense about their turf. So, you know, you yeah. don't – as the Bureau of Shipping, like you cannot make anything that's weaponized because – the Bureau of Destruction will be very displeased. Yeah, with that's that their thing. Yeah, that's their thing. Quit so, breaking things. So we haven't uh, we haven't explored sort of if there's an entity outside of that 
conglomeration of bureaus at all. Yeah. Um, which they're, they're or very, even if they are all connected, who knows? Because they don't even have to be. Yeah. They might be divisions of the same company. Mm-hmm. We haven't. Yeah, we don't. We don't really don't know. know. We, we do been, that thing where you figure out just enough to keep going, and then yeah. you move on. Because well, the thing is, if you if you figure out too much, you've just added constraints. Yes, and we don't we don't want the constraints yet. Yeah, and some even, questions should never be answered. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Next question comes from anonymous. As someone who is a self taught programmer attempting to make games, uh, what areas of knowledge have you guys found are missing from being self taught? So the whole DevOps thing we were just yeah. talking about is a pretty good one. Yep, 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 yep. Um, but I will say, I think the the two biggest things that I know that I personally have realized over time that I've been missing uh, are, I guess, the most important two things. There's, I think there's a lot of things, but the two most two most important are caring about testing mm. and caring about project management in the sense of like how my code is being handled in, in a, in a repository uh, for versioning and stuff. Um, I always just treated versioning systems as a backup system. I didn't, I didn't use them in any meaningful way. They were just there. So if I fucked something up, I could undo it. That was kind of, it was basically, it was a big control Z mm-hmm. scheme, you know, and that was it. Uh, and I just literally never did testing. And even as one of the, it's one of my many pieces of tech that I'm suffering from right now is I'm going back through now and adding testing to rumpus, but, Rumpus has become this huge beast. And so I can only, it just, you know, I spent all fucking weekend writing tests for this thing and covered just the tiniest fraction mm-hmm. of all the things that it can do. Uh, you know, so I focused on the things that are the most important uh, for, for us to run our games. Um, but, uh, but it was because I just didn't give a shit about testing because yeah. I didn't, didn't see how it was important. And it, and it wasn't until I started focusing on kind of the dev, the DevOps side and the delivery side and realizing just how much of my time was going into Putting something out, having Seth say, "Hey, this is broken." Mm-hmm. Tracking it down, uh, and then me going about tracking it down, him being unable to do something at the time, like there was an enormous cost associated with that. That because I was self-taught, mostly making, actually almost entirely making stuff for myself for years, mm-hmm. where I was the only one who suffered from a bug, and so it was actually just it's as kind fast. of like being a student. Where like if it's you if like you fuck up your homework, you get the bad grade. Yeah. And nothing else yeah. happens. But I think it's the thing right. with when you're when you're coding by yourself, if you don't write tests, it actually doesn't hurt you that much because the code that you're writing isn't very good anyway. You're probably gonna throw it away in the future. Right. So you're kind of writing disposable code in anyway, because you're not making big production stuff. Yeah, you're like, right? I just need to fix this one problem right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then and, I move on with my life. Right. So so testing feels very unimportant. Yeah, because yeah. you're like, why would I spend all this time to write a test? Because if there's a bug, I'll just fix it and it's only gonna affect me anyway. So you're not thinking like I need to write this code in such a way that if I, when I revisit it in 10 years yeah. or when I hand it off to somebody three years from now, that it's still fine. Yeah. Cause it's you're probably not going to happen in most yeah, cases. Right. And also the projects that you write as a, as a, when you're, when you're learning at the beginning, especially are, they're all small. You can contain the entire mental model in your brain in one mm-hmm. go. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, where everything is, you know, all the things that can go wrong with something. When you edit something over here, it doesn't matter that you've tightly coupled that code to a dozen other systems because you know that. You know that you did that, and so you know exactly what impact every change that you make can have on the whole system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once you've been working on the same product for you know a year, and it's grown to reflect mm-hmm. the amount of time you put into it, and there was like one of the bugs that I found this weekend when I was so I wrote a bunch of tests and found a whole bunch of bugs basically to match all the tests that I found. So again, it's important. <laughs> yeah, it worked. Um, but uh, but yeah, but one of them was um, no shit. Where was I going with that? You found you found a bug. Yeah, but I can't remember why I was going to talk about that specific bug. As the system gets bigger than the mental model. Oh yeah, yeah. So the, yeah, so that was, so I found this bug, and then mm-hmm. I, but I saw that feature that 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 the bug was you know wrapped around, and I didn't remember even implementing that feature. Oh yeah. And for a moment, I was like, maybe I just didn't implement it. But I, so I, maybe I just wrote in the documents that I did, but didn't actually do it. But I went back, and sure enough, I did implement it. I just fucked it up, right? But I was going back through my, you know, trying to think in my memory, could I? Could I spot any little reflection at all of even the idea of that feature? I couldn't. <laughs> right? Right? So you programmed a whole thing. Yeah. And, it's and just it was like probably a, it was six like a months ago. Right? It was situation. probably six months ago in the context of a whole bunch of other features. Yep. And uh, and that was the first time I, I actually – this was the first time in my entire programming life that something like that happened where I was all of a sudden realized that this thing had grown big enough that I didn't actually know how it worked. That I, that mm-hmm. I, that I, that I provably did not know how it worked anymore. Because somebody could ask you about brain. a feature and you'd be like, no, nah, it can't do that. And they'd be like, yeah, but it's right it there. It says that right there. And you'd be like, well, that's even, just probably in the documentation. Right. Like, no, you programmed the whole thing. It's, yeah, it's all it's in, in there. there. Yeah, I've even experienced this with, with Seth reading the documentation <laughs> for this stuff because, yeah. because basically I'm making an API, a web API for him to use via the games, right? And so I've got documentation so that he can just figure out how to use it. And then periodically he'll ask me some question about it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I, this doesn't do that. And mm-hmm. then, but sure enough, it's in the documentation. I go revisit the code and it's in the code too. 
Uh, so, <laughs> Shit. but I think I think Shit. that's the point is as your projects get get bigger um, and more important because you're going to mm. deliver them to other human beings. Uh, all this other stuff that seemed so unimportant and just and like a pure cost because it also like testing and documentation. Yeah, and it, it was really hard. Clean for me to get, code. Oh, yeah, yeah it, it was really hard for me to get past the belief that the most important thing for me to be spending my time doing was adding code. Yeah, and that anything I was doing that was not that was a waste of time or something that was a hurdle I had to get over as fast as possible. This is one of the this is basically the major idea from from DevOps that I think works for me too, which is that the your goal as a person participating in the system, whether it's just you as the system or a team, is not to get as many tasks done as possible. It's to increase the throughput of the entire system, which means that yep. if if you're banging out a ton of code, like that looks really neat from your local vantage point. Yeah. But on a systems level, that's actually a fucking huge problem because none of it's tested, which means there's going to be a bunch of back and forth. And you've it's also – every, every line of code you write is tech debt. So now yeah. you've created tech debt. Yeah. So now you have if you haven't built up mechanisms to defend yourself against that tech debt, then you're basically handicapping yourself mm-hmm. you know, a year down the road. So now the whole system is actually slower because you are fast. Yeah. Quote, unquote. Yeah. Your yeah. speed actually becomes a, a, a cost instead of, yeah. instead of a benefit. This is something that Sam and I have, have kind of gone back and forth. Oh, yeah. Periodically, Sam Sam will be sort of lamenting how slow it was to make this piece of art or that piece of art. And and every time I'm like, dude, I don't care if you're taking 10 times longer than that. It's still too fast. <laughs> yes, it's it's still too fast for all the stuff that I have on my plate. Yep. So by all means, mm-hmm. take six hours to make a single asset. Right. It's not going to affect me at all. In fact, I prefer it. Yep. So, <laughs> right. um, but, you know, there's also a personal satisfaction thing, which is like – you want to feel like you're being productive, mm-hmm. and so there is there is that that psychological edge to it. Well, I think it's it's you have to you have to think outside of your of your work in order for, to still get the gain. Because I think that was the biggest problem I've had in the past is that I, it was always just about like just get as many assets done as possible. Because look at all these assets we have to make, um, as opposed to saying deliver all these assets in such a way that they are so easy to put into the game that Seth takes almost no time to do it. Right. And when you, I think you take, you have to take a slightly higher vantage point to make it so that that work you do, for example, like I have my exporting checklist now that I run through and it's just like a bunch of stupid, like you just like send things to the back of the page, just like move things around, check, check all these matrices and transformation shit inside of Inkscape just to make sure that it's going to come out correctly. Um, I never used to do that and it's boring to do, but when put in the context of the whole pipe where it's like, okay, why is this important? Because if you made an asset and it's broken and then... Seth has to deal with it and tell you, then that's a huge waste of time, like a tremendous well, yeah, of time. Yeah, because now I was going to implement something. Now I can't. Yeah. So now that Your gets kicked back. Derailed. I guess kicked back into the queue, and then who knows when I'll be able to get back to exactly. it. And whatever you were doing has to stop so you can fix the yeah. thing that's broken. Exactly. So I think yeah, – Basically, things should never move backwards. They should not move backwards. So I, I think that's that's the trick is that if you – if it's hard because you're worried about your own productivity, I think you have to – step up a level and and be able to recognize and if you're not able to recognize it then then you have to put yourself in a place where you can actually get that so if it's you know actually going to the team that gets the work that you do so they refer to these as internal customers right so who's the person who gets your work whoever's downstream from you is your customer so like do you see those people ever have you talked to them about like the shit you've been handing them like are you doing a good job of giving (laughs) them a good product you know to work with the bizarre example or the bizarre metaphor from the phoenix project is they were like you're just throwing the pig over the wall and then now high-fiving yeah high-fiving because like we got rid of this pig and now over here we are with a pig with broken legs we're trying to figure (laughs) out how do we save this animal's life (laughs) yeah I love that metaphor. It's so good. It's like, you guys needed a pig. We have a pig. All right, here we go. Yep. And you just throw it. Yep. And we got it just, over the wall. Yeah. It's like, that's, like, that's no. not how you would safely hand a pig to somebody mm-hmm. yeah. uh, if that's a thing that you also, have to do. Also, why is this wall here? Yeah. Let's back up and ask that's that. That's maybe yeah. a bigger, that's a bigger <laughs> one. But also consider that you are your own customer. Your future self is your own yes. customer, right? Because that is the that is the person who has to maintain and add content to this thing that you're making. Mm-hmm. And if you don't make it easy – via self-documentation, via pipeline stuff yep. so that things are as automated as possible and via good architecture and clean code, then you're really fucking yourself yeah. in the future. You know, yeah. like it's, and I think, again, it's, it's when you're, when you're self-taught. But it feels so productive at it the does. moment. It does. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the, that's the truth. It does. Yeah. And, and but I, I don't think this is, ne- this isn't something that only self-taught people suffer from. I think no. it's because in a context where you're being taught 
when you're being taught in the context of, of a, of something of a bigger picture, um, you are taught to do a lot of these things, at least to some extent. Although what I've seen from students coming through like CS programs and stuff is that they still don't know about yep. most of this stuff. Most of them don't know um, about Git. Or, yeah, or, which is shocking. Yeah. By the way, if you are teaching kids and by kids, I mean college students mm-hmm. about, uh, well, about programming for the love of God, teach them Git. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is ludicrous that, that people are coming out of college programs without knowing. Does happen in our, the, the class that Seth and I taught? At Wash U, none of them knew Git. Yeah, and then we were like, "You guys You'd have a very, at some point we somebody give them would have a, a few crisis. resources." Yeah, yeah, we give them a few resources. You're like, make sure you like just take an hour or two and figure like you all program for a couple of years. Yeah. Like it shouldn't take a long. It's to very it out. easy to use it poorly, and it, using it poorly is sufficient. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what we said. Like yeah. just figure out how to commit. Figure out how stuff. to commit and push. And then yeah. yeah, I think it was week nine. Someone had one of their projects get corrupted. Like some crazy thing happened, mm-hmm. and he was like, "I can't get it back." And we were like, "Have you used Git?" And then he got mad at us and we were like, yeah. <laughs> we've been telling you for nine fucking weeks, like do this two hour tutorial to save you literally all of your yeah. work for you, the rest well, of your life. Like, it's, it's that front loading that time. Oh my right? God. Yeah. And this is one of those, uh, you know, oh, my dog ate my homework kinds of situations. And we're at this point, we're like, that should have been literally impossible. Yes. You yep. know, uh, so you don't get to, you don't get off the hook. Like mm-hmm. and, and this is especially true in a I mean yeah in a, in a classroom like okay sure yeah. you get the F you get the zero for the assignment but imagine imagine in a business context oh my God, yeah. somebody's like okay I need you to work on this project they're paying you they're paying if you're a developer they're probably paying you a pretty good amount yeah. of money you work on this project for a year you work on this project for a year the company has now and maybe you're working as part of a team so maybe the company has spent you know eighty k a year on mm-hmm. you as well as your ten colleagues. <laughs> Right, and so now you're talking about a project that like once a million you, dollar yeah, piece once you of factor software. in payroll tax and overhead and everything else, this is a one to one point five million dollar yep. piece of software. And then all of a sudden, you just fucking corrupt it. Yeah, and you're just like, oh yeah, I, uh, irreversibly, I mm-hmm. deleted three quarters of it because a Dropbox didn't sync mm-hmm. good, and yep. now it's all broken. Ugh, you know, yep. yeah. I mean, th- these kinds of mistakes are so easily avoidable. They are, but yeah, and, and I think <laughs> I think people are not being taught. When they're, when they're not self-taught, I think people are – unless they're being taught in the context of a business. I think that's like the one place yeah. that you're probably learning this stuff uh, for real. Um, but in the context of school, I think I think a lot of places are probably telling people about stuff. Yes. Um, but when you're in the context of just making stuff for yourself uh, or on small teams for like projects that you don't give a fuck about because it's a school project or whatever, uh, you just – you're not in the right context to appreciate how important this stuff truly mm-hmm. is. And so I think this is a thing suffered by everybody, but I think people who are self-taught tend to be even just less aware yeah, of the existence of the stuff. Yeah. I feel like that's where I'm at where like maybe all three of us are kind of coming out of a fog of yeah. of just sort of like shoot from the hip programming and, and mm-hmm. asset creation and stuff. Um, because, you know, one of the things that, that we think we might want to do in the long term is is scale up our operations in some way. And and that's a, that's impossible. At this, yep. like with the yeah. way that we are currently doing things, mm-hmm. like I, I could not just like bring on a second programmer to come join me in mm-hmm. my wild west of spaghetti <laughs> code. You know, um, like yeah. I, I need much better practices to to make. Well, that you kind need of thing to know possible. what the pipeline is. What yeah. are the individual activities making? Well, and it has to be designed in a way that people could collaborate on. It, yeah, which, I mean, it's one of the things I've been working on too is is adopting you know true like true Git flow right. behavior with my with my repo control so that. If I were to add somebody to the team or just be like, or just even because sure is doing a whole just of yeah, related stuff. Sure been able to so do even at some point, I'm like, sure, I just really need some help over here. Can you just go figure this part out? Right. Then I can just tell them, hey, just make a feature branch and then like, it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. It'll literally just be fine if you go do that. Right. Uh, and the process will be where he'll then merge it back in. It'll do automated testing. If it fails, it'll say, fuck you, you're not allowed to do mm-hmm. this. And you have to redo it until it works and whatever. Like <laughs> That's get- the message that goes back. <laughs> right. You're not allowed to do this. No other, no other explanation. Be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, I, I think, uh, I think all this stuff is super, super important. And I think it's, it's very easy to, it's just too easy to not think it's important yeah. when it actually matters the most. And I, and I think like with, with Crashlands, it all ended up okay in, in a way because, you know, we were just basically like working full throttle to try to get that yeah. game out. But you have to wonder, had we had good practices, yeah, it we, might have taken less time even. Oh, it might have. Know? It's well, hard to it say. It would have taken less we, Yeah, because we, we felt like we were saving time by not doing all of this stuff. Yeah, no, but it then, definitely would have taken less time. Yeah, but then two years into the project, right, when it's mm-hmm. a fucking clusterfuck of, on, on, all, on all dimensions mm-hmm. on all sides, right, uh, with no good practices in place. Um we had to have wasted just a fucking enormous amount of time. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I was actually talking to my wife about this this weekend because I was like, we we got away with it. Yeah. Uh, during that time, because nothing mattered as much in the sense that that we had a uh, we had four games out, but they weren't making a whole lot of money, and mm-hmm. so we weren't putting a lot of time into supporting them. Uh, it was just the three of us, and at any given point, we had maybe two thousand dollars in the bank, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And so. Uh, nobody was paying attention to us. We didn't have any legal problems. We didn't have, we had very few fans paying us money. Yeah. So we didn't know anybody, anything. We were a partnership. So we weren't running like payroll. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't have payroll to deal with. Well, we, we were weren't just like being paid. So it's hard yeah, to exactly. <laughs> right. So, so we're all basically <laughs> volunteering our time. Um, we don't have uh, QA departments. We don't have any, any people mm-hmm. there to even conceive of. Um, and, we had no sense of there being a future beyond just the one game. Yeah. Right. And so, so we, now, now here we are though, trying to have a company that'll last as long as we can make it last. We're trying to do we've things got, sustainably. Yeah. We've got scalably. We've got payroll tax to deal with. We've got 401k. We've got health insurance. We've got all these like HR related things we have to deal with. We've got a legal team on retainer so that we can like throw legal stuff mm-hmm. their way. We have all these partners now who we have, contracts with about putting our stuff on their platforms or like future things we might do with them. We have all these NDAs that we're under between all these different parties. Yep. Uh, there's just, and, there's and, now all this stuff going on. Yeah. And, and now I think, you know, back then there was any, any pressure imposed on our, on our workflow was self-imposed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now, and, and so, so at that time we had so much control over what it was that we were doing and what happened to us that, Mo- like we had so much wiggle room Please. to make mistakes and yeah, it would t- yeah. still turn out okay. Right. And, or and okay now, enough. okay enough. Yeah. And nowadays uh, just because of where we, where we are and also where we want to go, you know, if we don't start taking that really critical eye to every aspect of our work and how mm-hmm. things flow through the company and, and how do we get stuff into the hands of players, you know, um, then that's going to, that that's going to come At back. At some point it's going to hurt a lot. Yeah, none of us so, are interested in that. I mean, I think, I think yeah. we're, we already feel it. Um, yeah. well, but we feel it, but we're in a place where you know, where Crashlands is in. It's in the doldrums. You know, there aren't many people playing it. It's not. It's not a. It's no longer a successful title because people just aren't buying it. Right. Uh, it's keeping us afloat as a studio, um, but not by much. It's keeping us a slow sink. It's keeping us a slow sink. <laughs> we are above water, but but we're working on not being there. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so so we're in this really quiet period, and and actually having this this whole past year has been fabulous for development. So it yeah. just felt really great uh, because we, we've been able to kind of focus inward again, which has been really nice. Uh, but we're just kind of we just now have on the radar this time when that's going to go just go away really violently. Mm-hmm. And if we don't use this quiet time to, to prepare. really prepare for that, uh, then we probably won't be able to make a game again. For <laughs> we need to be like a metapod. After. Yeah. Yeah, we need to just be using just hard hardening right now. Yep. <laughs> Harden thirty nine times. That's the whole battle. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and, and and the fact is that like because and there's a there's a reason why it's been three years since we launched a game. Yeah, and it's because of this exact thing that we're yeah, talking that's exactly about. Exactly what it is. Yeah, you know we we were able to do we were able to do what we did with Crashlands because of our circumstance. Launching Crashlands changed the circumstance, mm-hmm. and we did not adjust properly we we adjusted but in just in the wrong we adjusted a lot yeah but just wrong yeah Uh, (laughs) and and as a result and we what we thought at the time the reason that we hired a bunch of people and stuff is at the time that we thought okay well we just need more throughput by adding people it would seem like the the rational next but the first thing you have to do is understand what throughput is understand what your processes are figure out the bottlenecks you know yep uh and in a lot of ways we we so badly understood all of that stuff that we just threw wrenches into all of our processes yep. all over the yeah. place. We actually made everything worse instead of making even anything better. Yeah. Turns out it's really easy to do. Yeah. So it's the unfortunate part of that. Yeah. yeah but yeah. I think that the important lesson from a that DevOps perspective is that the answer is almost never more people. Yeah. First get your shit it's under first control. Get, <laughs> yeah. First get your shit in order. And then once you've identified the bottlenecks that you cannot remove in any mm-hmm. other way besides adding people, then that's when you start talking about what kind of person would I need to to remove this bottleneck or to or to you know reduce it significantly? Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, that's where we found ourselves again. Is mm-hmm. only now we're thinking of it from this perspective and just think because back at the time I remember just thinking we just have too much work to do. Let's yep. just hire people to do more yep. work, right? And that was that was like the end of the the logical thought. 
Um, but uh, and that's, that's, and that's not- really a feeling. You know, if you're just like, oh, I feel like, oh, we're so overwhelmed. Yeah. We got so much going on. And it's it, it's never a, a firm analysis of saying yeah. like, okay, here's how much work is being done. Here's where it's being done. Here's where it's coming from and where it's going. Well, it's even more comical you when know. you realize like we only adopted Trello like six months ago, yeah. which means we've only actually had fully visible, like easily readable versions of all the work in progress since six months ago, yeah. which means that if you said something like, I feel so overworked. We didn't even know what that means. Yeah, it's like, you well, even know it's like yeah, we'll point to where the work is. Well, <laughs> yeah, right. It's in my where, head. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. all in my head. Well, yeah. You might have it in your head. Somebody else might have it in a workflow. Yep. The other person might have it written yep. down in a notebook. It's like, well, no wonder you feel overwhelmed because you don't know what the hell's going on. Yeah. You know? Although, yeah, there's another lesson for that whole DevOps thing too is, is uh, if you ask a team why they think something is going wrong, they're going to give you one answer. And then if you go into the analysis of it to try to figure it out, it's always going to be something surprising. It's just going to be something else. And not always, but often it's something easier to deal with. Yeah. So if you can do that analysis, then you can find yourself in a really good spot. So we got a bunch of work to do. So let's go. Yeah. So we're going to go do a meeting now. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, all right. That's all the time we have for this week. We'd like to thank our producer, Fat Bard, for making us sound good. Thanks to our community moderators who keep our Discord running. Uh, if you'd like to get more involved in the community, you can hop into our Discord server at discord.gg slash bscotch. And I think now I'm just going to say go to podcast.bscotch.net because we have a bunch of links there. And someday it will look good. Someday it'll look good. That day is not today. But we've got a shop. We've got a mailbox. we got a bunch of other stuff. You can ask questions. You can throw money at it's us. It's incredible. It's great. Uh, so just go to podcast.bscotch.net and just just gaze your eyes upon mm-hmm. just the beauty and splendor <laughs> that Adam has put out into the universe. And I really, I mean, more than anything in the world, I wanted to replace that website, but bottlenecks man what are you gonna do needs yep Yep. and you know we would uh if we got a lot of traffic to it we might replace it except we ripped out all of our analytics so we don't don't even know (laughs) that's not true because because we still get the referral link when it goes into soundcloud because that's where all the listens okay so we actually do know what fraction are coming from the podcast page and it's a very small fraction okay well let's beef that up it might be a circular problem. Like maybe mm-hmm. people go to the podcast page and like, and then they leave and then get to the podcast a different way. It's, yeah. I actually just think it's that the vast majority of people listen to podcasts on their podcast app. Yeah, I'm not going to go to your website and listen yeah. to your podcast. I think, I think it's the same that. thing as a game website. This is the reason I don't worry too much about it. Like I want our website to, to be good, you know, but mostly because we use it for – because all of our internal stuff there is now. Yeah. It's now on, via the website, right? Uh, I'm not so people can see it, obviously, but but that's where yeah. it's all accessed. And so the reason I make the website look good now is actually just for us because so we, I know, we have to look at it. <laughs> yeah, because I know nobody else gives a fuck. If you look at our, our visitor yeah. counts, you know, um, since I put up the website, which was six months ago now or something like that, um, it's been like eight thousand views on the main page or something like that. Yeah. Well, most people read the Crashlands manual, and that's it. So yeah, that one's had a bunch of reads, but that's yeah. because we send them a fucking email. No, I know. To that's it, what I mean. You know? <laughs> um, no one's just visiting us. No, one's, no one goes to just a random game studio website no, for no just, reason. People, people don't care. I mean, there's a small fraction who do, but but for the most part, people just don't care. And and until Levelhead goes out, there's not even a reason to because Correct. at that point, the site will have stuff like that's where that's where you'll find you know your share code links to go get other people's levels. That's where stuff, you'll get your amiibos, your plushies, uh-huh. your Levelhead chess boards. Your yep. mm-hmm. T-shirts, Ooh, level your uh, level head slash me undies collaboration uh, commemorative underpants. <laughs> yep. yep, all that. Yep, yep, level head just would be very confusing because everything is round. Uh, you know what I mean, yes, mm-hmm. like everything is just a little squat round thing. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. So I don't we'll know. We'll figure what, that out. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> that like, we'll, we'll talk to chess. Yeah, we'll talk to chess. chess. They'll they'll figure it out. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's all the time we have. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.